X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, August 31st. It's the end of August. August is now over. September starts tomorrow. Hope you had a real nice summer, 2020. Today, back in the day, August 31st, 1897, Thomas Edison received the patent for the first movie projector, the kinetoscope. And speaking of Edison, today, back in the day, August 31st, 1923, Edison Chiliquin was born in the town of Chiliquin, Oregon. Chiliquin, the man, not the town, gained international recognition for rejecting a $273,000 payout from the federal government as compensation for terminating the Klamath tribe of which he was a member. In 1954, Congress had passed the Klamath Termination Act, dissolving federal recognition of the tribe. This stripped them of all federal services, as well as a million acres of pine forest and their claims to the headwaters of the Klamath River. Most tribal members were given $43,000. Many lost that money to legal and medical expenses. In 1974, the remaining tribe members were sent payments. Chiliquin was the one who refused to accept it. He said in part, here's the quote, it would be like selling a part of you or a part of our ancestors. In January of 1980, President Jimmy Carter signed the Chiliquin Act, giving back some 580 acres of land to Chiliquin and his descendants. And the Klamath tribe was officially re-recognized and restored on August 28, 1986, almost 34 years today, back in the day. Today, we'll have your Quick 6 News headlines. Jason Lamb will join with a new segment from The Minority Retort. And we have an interview with Narayan DeBay, a recent graduate of Grant High School, Go Generals, and the contest winner of the New York Times Editorial Contest. His winning editorial on policing. First up, X-Ray. It is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. A man was shot and killed in Portland on Saturday night as far-right groups and Black Lives Matter protesters clashed, and it's making national news. Police have identified the man as Aaron Danielson, a supporter of the far-right Portland-based group Patriot Prayer. Police have not yet released information regarding the suspect. Prior to the shooting, a rally of cars fashioned with Trump and thin blue line flags drove through the city. The route included downtown Portland, which has been the hub of nightly demonstrations. Nightly demonstrations that have been going on for 90 consecutive days plus since the murder of George Floyd. On August 22nd, Black Lives Matter protesters and Proud Boys clashed during a midday demonstration in front of the federal courthouse. Paintballs, bear mace, and fists were among the weapons used. President Trump used this opportunity to tweet that if Mayor Ted Wheeler cannot regain control of the city, federal officers will return. Mayor Wheeler, in turn, held a press conference in response. And now you're attacking Democratic mayors and the very institutions of democracy that have served this nation well since its founding. Do you seriously wonder, Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It's you who have created the hate and the division. Your daily dose of data. Oregon Health officials reported 269 new cases today and four new deaths. That gets us to 26,554 confirmed cases and 458 confirmed deaths. The Oregon State Fair has gone online with an all-Oregon e-fair. Due to COVID-19, the organizers of the Oregon State Fair canceled the longtime late summer staple in Salem. On Friday, they announced a pandemic-friendly format with online performances and interviews streamed online and on Facebook. The e-fair will include musical performance, dogs that jump off docks, and much more. 
Two Trump-appointed appeals court judges outvoted a Clinton-appointed appeals court judge on a panel to overturn an Obama-appointed trial judge. The Ninth Circuit panel has lifted a judge's order preventing federal law enforcement agents from forcing journalists and legal observers from the scene of nightly protests. The order was issued Thursday night. It temporarily grants the Justice Department's request to lift that preliminary injunction that was imposed last week. That injunction, imposed by Judge Michael Simon in the U.S. District Court, he's the trial judge, extended restrictions placed on agents last month. On appeal, the panel split two to one. The two judges appointed by Trump, Eric Miller and Daniel Bress, provided the votes to stay the order issued by Simon. Simon, appointed by Barack Obama. The dissenting judge in the Court of Appeals was Margaret McCown, a Bill Clinton appointee. I know that there has been a long time in Portland mythology that judges are not political. The act of appeals court judging is a neutral affair. You know who doesn't agree? The decades-long, massively funded campaign to remake the American judiciary. The appeals court order said, and I am quoting, given the order's breadth and lack of clarity, particularly in its non-exclusive indicia of who qualifies as journalists and legal observers, appellants also have demonstrated that in the absence of a stay, the order will cause irreparable harm to law enforcement efforts and personnel. McCown, the dissenting judge, said the fact that restrictions on dispersing and attacking journalists have been in place for more than a month undermined the Department of Justice's claims that federal officials were facing imminent harm from the injunction. That is, if it was imminent, what's been happening for the last month? The lead attorney on the ACLU suit says, We disagree with the court's order, which is only temporary, not the final word. We look forward to having a chance to brief the issue on the merits. Meanwhile, on Sunday evening, Governor Kate Brown announced plans for stepped-up policing in Portland. In the coming days, Portland will see more state and local and federal law enforcement stepping up to quell unrest caused by Saturday night's shooting. In the statement, Brown announced what she called a unified law enforcement plan to protect free speech and bring violence and arson to an end in Portland. The proposal aims to help police respond to demonstrations for racial justice as well as recent counter-demonstrations from far-right groups that led to violence. The announcement also stated the additional resources will give police a better chance to arrest and charge people who engaged in violent or destructive acts. Brown is also proposing to bring police in from neighboring jurisdictions like Clackamas and Washington County Sheriff's Offices and the Gresham Police Department. And in a ripple of hope, the Portland group Taking Ownership PDX is on a mission to save black neighborhoods. Randall Wyatt, founder of the group, came up with a project aimed at protecting Portland's black neighborhoods by renovating and repairing homes. He says the effort is to help deflect gentrification and displacement. He posted to social media about the idea. Within a week, more than 50 volunteers signed up. Since starting in June, Taking Ownership PDX has grown to become a community collective of contractors, neighbors, businesses, even realtors. Lauren Gaucher, a realtor and board member, said, and I'm quoting, This is me taking the profit I make off of this and funneling it directly into something that can be reparations for black homeowners here in Portland. Taking Ownership PDX is currently in the process of getting their permits to become a nonprofit organization. They're still looking for more volunteers to help out. Speaking of people helping, a bake sale is raising money to support Portland's homeless youth. Youth Without Barriers held a bake sale on Sunday to raise funds for Portland's younger population of people experiencing homelessness. Riley Himmelman, founder of Youth Without Barriers, said, and I'm quoting, we're raising some funds for them to continue to have quality of life stuff. Groceries, phone bills paid, help with rent. Youth Without Barriers also helps younger people experiencing homelessness with more than just money. The event serves as a way for youth to be part of the community and to help everyone feel a part of it, too. There are beautiful people doing beautiful things out there, folks. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. 
Jason Lamb joins us next with a segment from Minority Retort. Jason is joined by nationally renowned artists Damian Jeter and Karen Slack, new artistic advisors to the Portland Opera. Hey, everybody. It's time for another episode of Minority Retort. My name is Jason Lamb. I'm the co-host and co-producer of Minority Retort, the comedy show, which you can see most of the time at the Siren Theater in downtown Portland. Uh, it's an all-people color comedy show hosted by myself, Julia Ramos, and a now rotating cast of POC comedic characters that hopefully we'll be bringing back to you at some point when the world isn't so crazy. But here on this show, we don't just talk to comedians and talk about comedy. We also talk to other talented, creative, and thoughtful people of color who are doing big things in the community and the world at large, which brings me to today's guests, each of whom have made significant contributions to the world of opera as performers. And now we'll be making an impact on a different level in the roles as artistic advisors to our very own Portland Opera. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show, Damian Jeter and Karen Slack. Damian and Karen, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, Now, I have to tell you in the interest of full disclosure to you both, uh, I know absolutely nothing about opera. And I'm sure you (laughs) maybe encountered many people like me uh, over the course of your careers that you have put you in the position I'm asking you to be in today is to educate a heathen like myself uh, about opera. Um, So I guess to get things started, uh, we'll start with you, Damien. What was it about opera that drew you to it? And how did you how did you discover it? And what drew drew you to it? Uh, I think I discovered it kind of late, actually. When I was an undergrad as a music education major, I was actually a trumpet major. And as a part of those sort of classes you take to become a teacher, uh, those method classes. So you take like woodwind methods and brass methods and stuff like that. I took a beginning voice class. And on the first day, we had to sing um, America the Beautiful. And so I stepped in front of the class and I sang. And I, you know, I grew up in a musical household. My whole family, they all sing. Um, And I sat down. I was like, that was pretty good, I thought. And then after class, the teacher says, I think you should take lessons. And I'm, I'm sort of horrified because I was like, I didn't think I was that bad, actually. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and uh, she was like, no, actually, I think you have the potential to be an opera singer. So, And I, I had never thought about opera. I wanted to be a conductor uh, and a composer. And that's what I wanted to do. I was really into the instrumental world. And then I started listening to opera. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I think the thing that drew me to it was like the, probably the power of it all. Um, just to be able to be on stage and to sing with an orchestra in the pit and be able to sing over that orchestra and just sort of let it all out is is powerful. And Karen, how about you? How did you come upon opera? I discovered opera when I was 14 years old. I'm uh, originally from Philadelphia. I live in Philadelphia now. So, you know, we are a big arts town all kinds of music and so I went to the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts uh, where I was a vocal music major and my choral teacher loved opera so we had to listen to opera every day blasted in the hallway 7 a.m. in the morning all you know we did all the big choral works and stuff so but I always had a voice I always had this big kind of high powerful sound but it was just like uh, ugly and unruly because you know I always say it's like a puppy with big paws, you know, ridiculous, you know, just 
<laughs> all over the place. And so, um, yeah, I went to my first opera when I was in, when I was 16 years old. I saw Carmen with Denise Graves, the legendary American African American mezzo soprano, and it changed my life to see a black woman up there on that stage, and I, and it made me believe that I could do it, you know. And so I just I would sing, and people would give me money, you know. I would win these competitions, you know, the little local kind of things, and I'm like, okay, I can do this. I sing, and people give me money, and I've been able to sing, and people give me money all, ever since. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, and why stop? I mean, once you've discovered that, why stop? Exactly. And, you know, sometimes the checks are big and sometimes they're small. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're able to cash them, I guess, is the only thing really that matters. Exactly. Um, so, you know, both of you kind of touched on what my next question was going to be. And, and it's based upon what I perceive um, about opera and, and performing it that, it's a, it's such a, um, an expression of raw emotion. It appears that you can, you reach, you can reach something inside yourself, and then, and just completely release it, and to, to do that well in front of, you know, a, a massive audience. Um, and I wonder if you can just describe what that, what that feels like to be able to, to do that. Uh, it feels very scary. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Literally, it feels like I'm walking across the stage with no clothes on. That's what it feels like to me. <laughs> There's there is the power aspect of it. Um, you you certainly feel like you could, you know, conquer the world. But at the same time, it is one of the most vulnerable places that I think one can be. Before we close out, uh, how can people reach you and what are your respective websites? And if people want to find out more about your work, how can they do that? Uh, Damien. Uh, you can reach me at damienjetermusic.com. Uh, That's with, with a G, D-A-M-I-E-N-G-E-T-E-R. Or on Instagram at, at D-G-E-T-E-R. And Karen? Yeah. I, I, the best way to reach me is like Facebook, <laughs> Facebook, Karen Slack. I have a, a fan page and um, also Instagram. I'm Kiki Slack. That's my alias. Um, please tune into my, my Facebook live show every Thursday at eight o'clock called Kiki Conversations. It's fabulous. Yes. We have the real conversations with the real artists and I would love to have you come on, Jason. That would be amazing to have you come on. And oh, wait, tell me more. Tell me more. What's uh, so what are the what are conversations are we talking about? Oh, well, listen, whatever you want to talk about. But it, it was born during COVID, of course, at my kitchen table. And uh, it started off with me talking to a friend over drinks, which is what I do all the time. As you can tell, I love to talk. So and I love to, to talk to people. And so I just started this Facebook live show. And Damien's been on with some amazing artists. And um, I do it every, Friday, every, every Thursday night at, at 8 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time. And also I have a YouTube page, Kiki Conversations with a K. And so I just talk to artists and talk to people. This week I have a black woman, a fierce panel of black women um, leaders, women who are chairman of boards uh, with opera companies and women who have their own businesses. And so, yeah, but I go the whole gamut, opera, you know, music theater or what, whatever, whatever comes to me. So, or radio hosts, yeah, so. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Even if they're mealy mouth radio hosts, uh, you're okay with that? <laughs> yes, come on. Listen, we need to, we need all the people on board. We need all the people to know what you're doing and, you know, and to hear your inspire. Yeah, I'm sure you have an inspirational story. Listen, everybody's got a story. Yeah. So. Now, I, I've lucked into basically everything I've gotten, but uh, <laughs> not, not like you tell us. Share some of that luck and, and sprinkle some of that luck dust on some of those people because we need it now. <laughs> All right, I'll take you up on that, and then we'll uh, we'll talk after the call here. I look forward to that, and I look forward to, uh, to hearing more from you both in the in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining me today, Karen Slack and Damien. Today, Karen Slack and Damien Jeter, uh, now of the Portland Opera. Narayan DeBay is with us to discuss his New York Times winning editorial, "Breaking the Blue Wall of Silence: Changing the Social Narrative About Policing in America." Ryan, thanks for thanks for joining us and correct my pronunciation if I'm screwing it up. No, you got it right, Jefferson. Thanks for having me on this morning. First of all, how did you decide to enter the essay contest? Both well, how did you decide to enter? I wrote the essay the about a, year a ago month to write two months before the actual. Ryan, Ryan, go ahead. Dad, Ryan, start again. Dad was talking at the same time as you are. Go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. I I entered the editorial contest about a month or two months after I wrote the um, editorial. I wrote the editorial for my local high school newspaper, Grant Magazine, and, you know, I saw the opportunity to, to submit it as a chance to potentially reach a wider audience. You know, I was having conversations as a result of my editorial in my community at my school, but I felt like I wanted to contribute to the wider conversation to potentially reach people that had different views than my own. And so that was the reason for sending it to the New York Times. And how did you pick the topic? The, uh, the How did you have the pressions? Was it just because you've been paying attention to what's been happening since, heck, before Ferguson several years ago? The alignment of your topic, what's happening in America right now, is hand in glove. Right, absolutely. Well, the impetus, of course, for my editorial was the shooting of my cousin, Isaiah Tucker, in July of 2017. But the truth is, while the conversation and action surrounding police violence and anti-blackness seem to be kind of heightened right now, I mean, this is not at all a new problem, right? Like, the racist and unjust nature of policing in the United States has been a problem for hundreds of years, can even be traced back to patrols for runaway slaves in the early 17th century, so... Now we're seeing the horrendous videos of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, and it just reminds us of how systemic and institutional this problem really is. So while I may have written my editorial before everything kind of boiled over, you know, unjust policing has been a problem for a long time, and it will continue to be a problem until drastic action is taken. You write about your own journey in rethinking social narratives around police. Without having to recite your whole essay, connect that narrative that you your own connect your own journey with the importance of rethinking those narratives right absolutely well as i mentioned in the editorial you know when i was younger becoming a police officer was one of you know my childhood dreams some people dream of being an astronaut something like that i dreamt of becoming a police officer i remember them in the parades and getting the stickers from them as they would walk by and thinking about protecting the community And so when I would hear at a young age examples of police brutality or see videos of Eric Garner, for example, my first reaction was to defend the morality of the individual police officer. It was to think about the police officer as an individual and to 
to see how I can defend this person that I saw as, as a hero. And I think that connects to the conversation because I think a lot of people are not willing to see this for what it is, which is a problem with the system. A lot of people are stuck thinking about individual police officers, about not all cops are bad cops, about I know a police officer that was a good cop, or I remember this positive interaction with this individual police officer. And following this experience with my cousin, I really had to rethink what policing meant to me. And it was no longer just wanting to become a police officer or seeing a police officer on the street, but it was thinking about how the system is set up to oppress and to target people of color. And that really changed my perspective. Gen Z, your generation, which you can call whatever you want, has been instrumental in this wave of Black Lives Matter protests. How do you, uh, how do you characterize how your generation is showing up at this point in history? Uh, how do you understand that? Is it merely that our younger uh, voices are leading indicators that they have been present at a time and their opinions have been formed at a time of greater awareness. Uh, talk to us about the generational aspect of what we're seeing in our country. Right, absolutely. Well, I think what it shows, to be honest, is that people are fed up. You know, a lot of the people who are getting involved in this, in this movement and who are catalyzing the movement, to be honest, are black and brown youth, people my age and younger who, you know, haven't spent that much time experiencing life and experiencing their community because they're only 15, 16, 17, 18, and yet they've had enough time to know that what we're seeing right now is unacceptable and it's way past time that something happens. And I think the sort of heightened conversation, the action, the undying movement that we're seeing right now, the protests, the, the marches every single night, it's, it's showing that the youth are no longer willing to be passive. We're no longer willing to let the adults control the conversation. And the world that we live in, we are taking the opportunity to contribute to the conversation. We want to be in front now. I think that's what I'm seeing right now is that people are, people are just fed up, especially the youth. Changing the subject, Brian, you're, you attended Grant High School. How many of the four years that it takes to get through high school now were you actually at Grant High School rather than sent off to Madison? Right. We were. Uh, I was there for my freshman year and for part of my senior year. Obviously, the senior year got cut a little bit short. But uh, the middle two years, my sophomore and my junior year, we were at the Marshall campus down in southeast Portland. So, so you knew that you knew the school both before and after the renovation. How do you feel about the renovation? Actually, it's more than a renovation; it's a major rebuild. The, the, right, that's the, true. Work? Right. Well, walking up to the to the building on my first day of senior year, it felt very familiar since they kept the outside and they restored it to what it was for hundreds of, or for a hundred years before that. But the inside is almost unrecognizable. You know, it looks completely modernized. They have a giant staircase in the center that kind of opens the whole floor plan up. And I mean, they really designed the whole thing to be modern. There's collaborative workspaces, forums where people can sit and, um, you know, collaborate with one another, whiteboards on the walls, glass classrooms where people can go in and out. So it was, it was unrecognizable at first, but it, 
became clear, you know, over the next few months that they really designed it in a way that was conducive to collaborative learning. And that was definitely uh, an awesome part of the renovation. And do you have an opinion on the mural? Personally, I... I um, and, you, and you should explain to people what I'm talking about. Right. So the murals are um, these historic murals that were built, um, I don't know exactly how long ago, but um, several decades ago, I think, in, it was in the, 30s. the auditorium of Grant High School, and they were originally put there to honor one of Grant's earlier principals. Um, but the murals depict a whitewashed view of history in which, you know, you have pilgrims or people coming over from you know, from Europe to interact with the um, Native Americans and indigenous peoples. And, and, and in the, the murals, they have their guns lowered and they're, you know, offering peace, which we know if you, you know, look at any sort of historical documentation that that's just an inaccurate representation of what happened. It was far more violent, far, far more oppressive. And, you know, I think the um, NASU and at Grand High School has talked about the need to, you know, share what really happened and to not present this whitewashed, idealistic view of history that kind of paints over what really happened, paints over the oppression and the discrimination. And I agree with them. I, I mean, I think having that they call it the ideals of education, which, you know, maybe it is an ideal of an ideal situation of, you know, interaction between two different cultures. But I think, you know, if the ideals of education are whitewashing and painting over what really happened, then I can't I, I can't agree with that statement. So, Ryan, how do we how did you recommend that we break the blue wall of silence? Right. Well, I mean, I think it is about conversation. And I think what's happening now is difficult and it's scary for a lot of people, but I think it's necessary. I think people who might not be paying attention to the movement and to the problem are waking up to it. They're seeing what's happening in their communities and their country, and they're realizing that a conversation needs to happen. And the conversation that needs to happen is, it needs to shift right now from a conversation about individual police officers to a conversation about the system. People need to read about the history of policing People need to talk to victims of police brutality. They need to talk to black and brown organizers of marches and protests and learn about why this is happening. Why are people talking about this as a systematic problem in the United States? Because it's a problem with the system. And that's what the conversation needs to be about. And I think if people just make it a goal to have that conversation with their family members, their friends, their coworkers, then you're going to see a lot of change happen. Once people are more receptive to this issue, then you're going to see that represented in, represented in government, you're going to see that represented in the news, and that's, that's what progress will look like. You've done lab research at OHSU, research at PSU. How does that inform the way you write about health and science? Some of what we're doing is connecting. Some of what's, I think, happening in the public conversation is combining the psychological, the mental, the ideological, the philosophical, the policymaking with also the physical, connecting trauma to what happens with policymaking, what happens with protesting. How is your interest in what we might call the hard scientists, the hard science, connecting with your journalism and advocacy work? Right, absolutely. Well, working at OHSU and PSU, 
and working with those hard sciences, what that really opened my eyes to is the need to make data and facts and statistics, especially regarding health, um, more accessible. You know, there's a lot of really unapproachable stuff when you look at it, stuff that you might need a degree to, to understand, that you might need to spend weeks on to understand. And that has changed my perspective in journalism in the sense that I want to make everything that I write approachable. I want, if I'm going to include a fact or a statistic that I think is particularly notable, I want to present it in a way that one contextualizes that fact or statistic, but also connects it to the reader and helps the reader understand its importance in, in the conversation. And that is, you know, something that I gained from that experience is how can I combine this, health and science and these statistics with my journalism in a way that makes it more approachable to the general to the general public you just graduated what was graduation grant like in 19 excuse me 2020 well it was a little bit dystopian to be honest with you you know we we all drove up in our separate cars got out for two minutes got our picture picture taken and drove through in the parade and went back home it was not at all ideal but you know i'm I'm glad that they put something together to kind of commemorate the the moment. Well, Dad, any final questions for Narayan? I'm just so delighted that he was willing to join us and my compliments for what you did and what you're doing. What is next for you, Narayan? Uh, next is at the end of September, I'll be joining the uh, UChicago class of 2024 um, in Hyde Park and, and hopefully continuing these kind of conversations on campus. U Chicago is the way the cool kids describe the University of Chicago? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, congratulations. It's a good school. Good luck in your... So when, when, when do you start? Say again when the first day is? Uh, the end of September. Is it always start at end of September or are they delaying it? Uh, nope. They usually start a little bit later for the University of Chicago. Um, All right. And then are you going to be going to classes live or is or are you going to be doing a cor- basically correspondence courses but living in a dorm? The majority of the classes will be um, online in the dorm. Well, good luck. Class of 2020 will Thank always you. be remembered, and we really appreciate you spending this time. And don't, so and don't let the Freedman free marketers <laughs> brainwash you into thinking that they know anything. Yeah, the the, connect, the connection between University of Chicago and and uh, and and some of the some of the more pernicious arguments in uh, in economic politics is a topic that my dad I'm sure would be delighted to talk to you for another hour. But anyway, take right. care, take care. Travel Thanks away. so much. Thanks to Jason, Damian, Karen, and Orion for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about thirty minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five star review. You got a story idea. You got a story idea you want to help out in some way? Email the local at xray.fm. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.